And uh, I have one other announcement as you finish filling out those connection cards, and that's this, is that uh, this time of year at Christmas, sometimes uh, uh, people overspend in this part of our culture, and then money gets tight, and the bills start coming in, usually in January, sometimes in February, and what I have noticed in ministry and in life in general is that uh, financial problems cause other problems, because then we get stressed out, and we get mean to other people, and then we get this snowball effect, and a lot of divorce happens over uh, financial issues, a lot of fights happen and all this. It doesn't need to be that way. And so a few years back, we started, we invited uh, uh, Stephen Falacci and Garrett, who've been part of our church a little bit, to, to uh, help teach us go through Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University. And I went through this the first time through, and uh, it changed, Amy, our life. It really was. Financial peace is a reality that you can have. And it goes through, talks about how God tells us to spend our money, and how to do it, and how to invest it, and what it is, and what it isn't, and uh, how it is practical tools, and if you this year could use some financial peace, February, February 26th, uh, but we want to make sure that we get your materials. We want to make sure that you're planning your times. It's going to be Tuesday nights uh, this uh, time. It's at 6 o'clock, and it'll be right here at the church starting in February. If you would like to sign up for that, this is what I'd like you to do. On your connection card, write FPU. Make sure that we have your email address. And then this week, we'll contact you. with you know, the, You'll have to log in, register, and, and all that so you can get your materials shipped to you. If you have questions about financial peace, you want to know more about it, uh, you can write FPU. Put a question mark next to that. And what we'll do is have uh, Stephen Garrett, or actually uh, Michael and Jamie Hodges, will also be joining them and teaching this class. And so they'll be getting together with uh, contact you, answer your questions, and all that. So there is your announcement. Let's get into God's Word. How about that? Yes. We get to start, I thought we got to start the new year however we wanted to. It's one of the nice things about uh, being with the staff and we plan our sermon series uh, last year and we went through this and we got to pick any book. We could do anything we wanted to at the beginning of the year. So we got to pick my favorite book, Philippians, so to, we get to share with you. So it's uh, something fun and we're titling the series New Life because that really is kind of what Philippians is all about, right? I, I went, um, does anybody here like steak? Just me? Okay, yeah, steak's delicious, right? And uh, I went out, took my wife out. Uh, we, we have a house full of guests. We'll maybe get to that a little later. But I had a house full of guests for a Christmas family, all that kind of stuff. And for one day, they left. They were going to do something different. And I was like, I'm going to take my wife to get a steak. And it was great. So we went into town and realized, and this was on New Year's Day, which was fantastic, except for most restaurants are closed on New Year's Day. So all the steakhouses that I would normally go to closed. So we went to a restaurant we don't normally go to, but they had a steak there. I'm like, yes, I'm going to have a great steak. And it's a steak, steak Oscar. It's got like a, a crab. I guess the crab was named Oscar. I don't know why they call it that, but it was, and I'm like, yes, this is going to be fantastic. And I like my steak like almost like rare because i almost mooing because it's the way God intended, right? So I order my steak and I get, and it serves, comes out, all right, and they say, you know, uh, Here's your steak. I'm like, fantastic. I was so excited. And I cut into it, and it's like medium well to like charcoal, right? It's somewhere in between there. And it's, my steak was dry, and it was destroyed, and, right? But then the waitress is like, gone. So we're waiting, and I'm like, well, I guess I'm just going to have to have the steak. Comes back, how is it? I'm like, well, it's kind of dry. Well, and she said, well, how can I improve your steak? Can I bring you some steak sauce? I'm like, Far be it for me to eat a steak with sauce, right? There is no improving the steak. The steak is not a great steak. There is, there's no way, I can't just add a little, let cook, it's done. I think a lot of times this year that a lot of people make these, what they call resolutions, right? 
Well, what they try to do is take their life and to improve it. I'm going to add something to my life that wasn't there before. I'm going to make myself just a little better. You're a cooked steak, right? Oh, I can get up earlier. I can run more. I can save a little bit more. I can do all these kinds of things. But basically, most new resolutions about making me better and to realize that I'm just cooked. The great news that we have in Christ is we don't get a new steak. But we're going to get a better steak. We get a new steak. We get a new life. This time of year, people come to church. I'm going to new way. I'm going to improve my life. I'm going to start coming to church. I'm going to tell you, that's not what church is about. Church, God is about this new life, new life. He's giving the whole new steak, and this time it's done right. That's what we're going to get to. That's what Philippians is about. And so, I'll tell you what. Let's get into it. We say, how do I have this power for this new life? A lot of times, we try to do little things. We want to do these resolutions to improve our life, and then we fail. By the second week of January, half people have already failed the resolutions, right? And so if your resolution was to fail at resolutions, you're set. But for most of us, it's not how woke, right? We, we just, we get there. We say, if I don't have the power to improve the life I already have, how on earth am I going to have the power to, to accept and take on this new life that God's given me? It can seem overwhelming. It can be almost threatened. I want to tell you that it's not, a, it's not up to you, and that's what's going to be our memory verse for this whole series. Our memory verse for this series is Philippians 4.13. says this, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Not you. What God has called us is I can do all this through him. Now, this is from our passage, and Zach did an incredible job last week. And if you missed his sermon last week, go on to our website, funchurch.com. You want to listen to it. Contentment is powerful. Talk about in context, this is talking about the power, the superhuman strength to have contentment in life, no matter what. Comes through this passage. That's that's in context. Now, in context, we also want to say contentment, we have to understand, is what Paul talks about through all of Philippians. How do we get there? I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. This is an amazing passage because what it'll do for us as we go through this series, as we continue to live in life, the enemy's going to be there to tell you you're not strong enough to live this new life, to accept this new life. You're not going to be able to make these changes. And God's like, that's why he came. That's why he's given you his Holy Spirit. That's why it's his power that's going to be made alive in you and through you. This is how we answer the enemy, his lie that says that you're not going to be able to make it. But I can do all this through him who gives me strength. This is a radical message. This is, you're not going to get this message if you go to any other, like a life coach, you're going to read a self-improvement book. They're going to say, I can do all of this if I have enough dedication. I can do all of this if I have enough information. I can do all of this if I have the right kind of situation. Then I can do all of this. Nah. This is radical. The world's message is this. You can be good enough if you can make yourself good enough. And there's two problems with that. The first problem is it's all about you. Our resolutions are almost 100% of the time about me. I want to stop being so fat for me. I want to stop being so broke for me. Right? I want to be, I want to be better for me. It's all about me. That's tiny and small. Our resolutions are about two small things. We are called to something so much bigger than just me. The second problem is all up to me. The resolution, I'm going to save more money this year. Well, guess what? You might lose your job. Then what? I'm going to be healthier this year. You might get hit by a truck. Then what? We make resolutions and promises to ourselves that are based upon this crazy, chaotic world that we have no control over. If you're going to try to live this world according to your own power, you will be disappointed. At some point, you will be disappointed. 
The problem with the world's message, the world's gospel, you can become a better person. If you, it's up to you to become who you want to be. Well, I'll tell you what, I've seen what this world does to us. And I also know the weakness that's in me. I'm a cook steak. There's got to be something more. The message that we have in God is a much better one. We're going to talk about today a new message that our new life begins with. The message in Christ. So if you have your Bibles, would you please join me? We're going to travel through Philippians. Just turn them to Philippians chapter 1. That's going to be on page 818 if you have one of our Bibles. If you forgot your Bible today, don't worry about it. We've got plenty in the back. We are a church, that is. And so we have them right there by the sound booth, and I encourage you to grab one. If you need a Bible, please keep it. That'll be our gift to you. Now, through this series, we're, this is a book series. It's an exegetical series. We're going to go into the Bible, and we're, which means that you've got to start with the Bible. So if you have a Bible, start bringing it. Because, well, here's the thing. You're going to take notes, but you can also take notes in your Scripture, right? You can do that. So when you read it, you'll kind of remember some things. It's a good way to do it. And like I said, if you need a Bible, take one, our gift. Just make sure you have it. Okay, so Philippians 1, we begin this chapter. Um, I want to tell you a little about Philippians, how it began, and the book itself gives us some good information. Verse 1, it says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from our God and Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. So in that passage, we discover a couple things. First one, who wrote the book? Yeah, there you go. We have Paul wrote there, and, and Timothy was there with him, okay? And uh, who did they write it to? Yeah, all the God's people in Philippi. That's called the church in Philippi. And then make sure that we know that it's a church. He says the deacons and the elders that are there too. Churches have deacons and elders, right? So this is the church of Philippi. That's who it was written to. Where was Philippi? Well, Philippi was the very first church in Europe. This is pretty awesome. We read about how it was planted in Acts 16. Uh, it was on Z- uh, Paul's second missionary journey. And he starts down here in this little town called Damascus, okay, which is modern-day Syria. And then he leaves from there, and he travels along the, that coast through Turkey, modern-day Turkey, all this. And he gets to where it says Asia there, that pink country. And you notice he ki- kind of goes north, and he goes up to that green country area that says Bithynia and Pontius. Those are kind of states in the Roman world. And we read during that time, while he was kind of skirting in Asia, um, Paul wanted to go north. He wanted to go around the Black Sea kind of uh, this way, right? He wanted to go through that area to take the gospel basically to modern-day Asia, okay? And it said that the Holy Spirit kept blocking him. The Holy Spirit kept him from going there. But you'll notice that he continues to just skirt the surface like Paul is stubborn, okay? He could have gone through Asia where there's lots of other cities, right? The seven cities we read in Revelation, all that are, are down there in the middle of that, the Asia portion. But, but no, he wanted to go north. And it says the Holy Spirit, he was like, it kept blocking. Paul was like, can I go yet? And the Holy Spirit's like, nope. And he's like, can I go yet? And nope, right? So eventually he skirts all the way across the northern part of that, po- of that portion of Asia in there, which is Turkey, and he gets to the ocean. Now, he, he went as far as he could, and the Holy Spirit stopped him from going to, to what we modern-day Asia now. And so he gets to this little town called Troas, which is actually a city, and it was a uh, actually a pretty good port city, and they had uh, a lot of trade there. And while he's there, he's frustrated because he feels like God's blocking him from sending the gospel where he wanted to go. And he goes there, and he's tired, and so he, he decides to sleep, because that's what people do. And he's sleeping at night, and then like this. is the only picture of a Macedonian man I can find on the internet. So, anyway, Macedonian man is saying, come to, come to Europe and share the gospel with us. And so Paul's like, well, that's a weird dream. It must be from God, and it was 
And so the next day, they get a couple of tickets on a boat, and he and Silas and, and uh, Luke uh, and Mark get on a boat, and they go up to this place called Philippi, which is where this church was planted. They go to Philippi. Paul normally, when he would plant a church, would go to the synagogues because Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, right? He's the one that, that God used the Old Covenant, everything like that, to explain to the world who the Messiah would be. And so Paul would normally go directly to them because it would make the most sense. The Messiah made sense to them. They were expecting him. And he would go there and explain, hey, your Messiah has come. This is great. And he would start the church from there. But here in this giant city of Philippi, which was a Roman outpost, it was a Roman city, actual Roman citizens lived there, which is a big deal, there were not enough Jews to have a synagogue in the entire city. This was a place that was completely dark from understanding the gospel. I mean, they, were so, they, had, they would have no idea of the sacrificial atonement or, or anything like this or even the, to expect the Messiah. So what does Paul do? Well, he's in the city and he realizes no synagogue. And so he says there are a few Jews that live there, just not enough for a synagogue. And so he finds out where they go. And they would go out of town to this little place down by uh, this, uh, this river and they would pray together. And so Paul said, okay, that's where I'm going to go. And so he went down there, and he met the, the, the believers, the, the, uh, the Jewish uh, folks that were there, and they went down this river to pray, and they met this gal who was there named Lydia. And Lydia was a very successful businesswoman. She, uh, she had a textile company, and she was doing pretty good. And Paul explained the gospel to her, and she accepted it. And Lydia became the first European convert to Christ. Isn't that awesome? And Lydia had a lot of power. She was, you know, she was a very successful woman, powerful woman. And so she is baptized. The other people in her household were like, well, this makes sense. They are baptized as well. And we have the first home church. And Lydia's home, we find that the first Christians in Europe are planted there. But the gospel needs to grow. So Paul then goes into the city of Philippi. And you can read about this in Acts. Pretty crazy. And uh, they go up in there and... Like a lot of places in the world, it was very dark. They had no idea who God was. And the demonic force certainly was a lot of, a lot of demons. People were possessed. Uh, and so there was this girl who was a slave, which are a lot of slaves in Roman colonies. This little girl who was a slave, she had a demon possessor. And this demon-possessed girl would follow Paul around and say, this man is from the one true God, right? Which is true, but it was annoying. Because if you, I'm saying, you're true, everybody, that would be annoying. So after a few days, Paul's like, I've had enough of this. And he says to the demon, get out of her. And the demon, of course, has to and leaves. And then the girl is set free. She's relieved from this demon um, that had possessed her, so it was good for her. But that demon, um, one of the things it would do is it would, port, it would uh, tell the future for people. And so the slave girl's owners would sell her out to uh, rent her to other people so that she could give them their, their fortunes. And uh, so once the demon was cast out, she couldn't do that anymore. So they lost their, their stream of revenue through her. And uh, so they weren't happy, and so they started telling lies about uh, Paul and, and got the city up in a roar, and there was uh, like an uproar, and so there was like this, uh, they came out with their pitchforks and, and torches, and they're like, Paul, right? And they, tell, and they bring him before the, the city council, and they're like, these guys are trying to destroy us, right? And uh, even though they weren't. And so without a trial or anything like that, they take Paul, Silas was with him, and they, and they whip him. Uh, publicly, with uh, brutally, and then they bring them to the prison, and they don't just lock them in the prison. They lock them into, they chain them to actual floor in the wall, so they're stuck like this in a hard, cold stone prison. And then they were on the most innermost cell. It's like going to, to the, uh, it's the it's the highest uh, security, right? They're locked, chained in there, and they're stuck there for something they didn't even do. 
And while they're there, Paul and Silas are like, we have joy, joy, joy down in our hearts. Let's sing about it. Right? And so that's what they did. You know, all the way till it was like midnight. And I'm sure the other prisoners enjoyed that. Right? So they're just hanging out, just singing, hey, the Lord's here, you know. Lead me to wherever, you know, your faith is or whatever. And that's what he, they did. And then God sent an earthquake. And it was a bad earthquake. So bad that the prison doors fell off. And what we know about prisons is they're usually built pretty beefy. So if the prison doors fell off, apparently it was a pretty big earthquake. And so there was chaos at night. And the prison guard, he wakes up because And he wakes up, he runs out of his house. He looks at the prison and he realizes the doors had fallen off the prison. And he thinks this is it because if you were a prison guard, and in the Roman law, this is how they made sure that nobody would escape. If you're a prison guard, if, if somebody escaped, then you had to finish out the rest of their sentence. Yeah, so there's good motivation not to let people escape. So he looks and it's like, not just one, but all of his inmates had escaped. And so he's like, well, this is done. So he pulls out his sword and he's going to kill himself right in front of the, you know, the door that had fallen into prison because he couldn't see inside of the jail because you know, it was before they had light bulbs. So this was dark. And so he's going to kill himself. And Paul and Silas were sitting inside. They, their chains fell off of them. They could have left any time they wanted to. But they were sitting inside and they're watching this. And, uh, and then finally Paul's like, hey, like, I'm going to kill my... Wait a second. Who said that? And, he, and Paul said, we're in here. Nobody escaped. We didn't leave. And the prison guard's amazed because now he has his life back, right? And so he orders the, the other soldiers to go in. They bring their torches as they checked out. Everybody's there. And he's like, what is this? And so then he says to Paul and Silas, wait a second. Why didn't you leave? And Paul uses that as an opportunity to share the gospel with his prison guard. And that very night, he and his whole family were baptized into faith. To Paul, it was it's an amazing thing. Well, the next day, of course, there was this natural disaster in the city. It was chaotic. And the city council comes around. They realize what happened with Paul and Silas. And, and this whole controversy, too, that they whipped him. And then it came out that uh, Paul was actually a Roman citizen. And you're not supposed to just whip Roman citizens without giving them trial or something like this. And so it was kind of a big deal. So like the city council who denied him his rights could have been whipped. <laughs> so they were like, mm, maybe we should be really nice to him. So they came in. They said, oh, it's great that you guys are okay. How about you leave now? Let's never talk about this. Go away. Paul was like, well, I appreciate that you let me out of prison, but I think I'm going to hang around here for a little while because we have a new church. And because of what had happened, Paul now had great freedom in the city because <laughs> the city council wasn't going to touch him was able to plant that church, and the church was protected and started to grow. Once the church was ready, and it was grown, and it was, it was, it was healthy, the elders had been raised up, Paul decides to continue his secondary missionary journey. So he has a great affection for this, this, con- this church, this city that was built in this town. Ten years later, Paul goes, we find that he is actually in Rome in prison. Uh, he's waiting a trial. He's been in prison for quite a while. He's near the end of his life. Um, again, why was he in prison? Because he preached the gospel. Right? He didn't violate any laws that uh, he was there, and so he appealed to Caesar, so he had to wait in trial, wait in Rome, in prison. This great missionary can't go anywhere. He's stuck there. And if you're in Roman prison, they don't just feed you. They'll let you starve while they watch you. If you're going to f- get fed, it's going to be somebody that you know is going to feed you. They're going to let you freeze unless somebody you know brings you clothes. Right? So here's Paul. He can't work, and there he's, at the, he's completely vulnerable, trapped. And this church at Philippi, even though they are all the way over in Greece, and if you know a map, uh, Italy's kind of a ways away. Um, they hear about it, and they're like, well, that's not okay. We love Paul. And so they take up an offering, and they say, we're going to love Brother Paul. We're going to read a real need of his. 
And so they, they get together offering, and so they, they put it all together, and now they've got to get this offering over to make sure that he has food and clothes and all that kind of stuff. So now that he's cared for and he's loved, and, and I'm sure they sent a letter and all that kind of stuff too, but they had to get it there. Well, it was before the internet, so they couldn't just wire the money, right? So they actually had to take the money over there. And it was before they have coins. And the Roman coins were these little, like, silver, and sometimes they had gold coinage and things like that. And if you've ever carried around a bag of silver and gold coins, you'll notice a couple things. One is bulky. Have you ever walked around, with the, like, to the laundromat? When I was in college, I used to go to the laundromat. Now I get the, right? It's bulky. It's heavy when you have coins. Also, it's obvious, and it's noisy. Okay? Well, they have to get that money that's bulky, noisy, and all obvious, right, securely from Greece to Rome. Now, who are you going to pick to do that? Because there's no postal service, and we don't even mail money, through, like, like dollar bills through the mail, unless you like, live on the wild side, right? How are you going to get the money there? Well, they had to pick somebody that they trusted, a highly trusted man named Epaphroditus. We read about him in the second chapter of, of this, and they gave him, and, and really, you think about, you have to really think about who you're going to give all this money to. Because Epaphroditus, he could be like, thanks for the cash, and then go have a lot of fun in, in Rome and then come back on a paid vacation or does not come back. You know, you have to think about who you're going to give your money to. This guy was somebody that the entire congregation, this city, trusted this man. And he also apparently was tough enough. They're like, we can trust you with big bulky bags of money to travel all the way across where, so people won't rob you. This guy would be awesome. Someday I'll get to meet Epaphroditus. I think he's a cool dude. Anyway, he travels over, delivers the gift faithfully, meets Paul in prison, waits there, and risks his life to do that, by the way, because now he's associated with Paul, and he gets sick, because sometimes we're doing God's work, bad things happen to us, and he gets sick to the point he almost dies. So Paul is kind of nursing him to health, he's, uh, you know, encouraging each other, and he gets better, and Paul's like, all right, I want to write a letter back, a thank you note, but also a letter of encouragement for the church of Philippi, saying, you know, we're in this. So he writes the book of, of Philippians, this is the letter, inspired through God's Holy Spirit, and so he gives it back to Epaphroditus, Epaphroditus throws back, delivered it to Philippi, and that's where the book comes from. The theme of this book that we have here is joy. You think about the circumstances which it was written. Paul, in chains, in prison, waiting, and the theme of the book is joy. In fact, the word for joy, the word rejoice, is, is found here uh, numerous number of times, more than any other book in the New Testament. These four chapters. That's what it's about. If you read Philippians and you miss joy, you missed what it's had to say. Can you use some joy? This is God's message of joy for us. But also, the focus of this book is also is new life. The joy that we have is not based on circumstance. Paul was in prison. The Philippian church, it, was not, it wasn't things weren't always great for them, right? It wasn't based upon, the joy was not based upon how things were going in life. Their joy was based upon something different. Paul writes a book that says our joy that we have and share is based upon our new life that we have. Not a fix-up life, not just better circumstances in our life, a new life, and this is the root of our joy. And that joy that he talks about, this new life that we can have, to find this joy in, each chapter kind of highlights a different element of what, why we have that joy. Now, when Paul wrote Philippians, he didn't write chapter 1, right? Those were added later so that we could find things easier. The reason that the editors later came on and put the chapters where they were is they saw, well, here, here's a change in kind of focus, right? This is why they make the chapters kind of where they are. They're not divinely inspired, but where the, where the chapters are put. It's kind of like here's a, a thought break. And so chapter 1 has a message, and chapter 2 kind of has a new portion that adds to it. Chapter 1 talks about our new life, the message, the new message we have in Christ. Chapter 2, it focuses on in this that we'll talk about next week is our new character that we have in Christ. 
The chapter 3 goes on a new perspective that we gain through this new life in Christ. Chapter 4 goes on the best part, and it says that we have a new partner in this, this life. And uh, that's where the, where the power comes from. That's the beginning of, of Philippians, and kind of the, what it has. So we recognize we have a new message. That's what we begin with. What is that message? It is the gospel. That is the new message we have in Christ. Right? In fact, in the book of Philippians, in the, uh, we, we read this word in Greek. It's called euangelon, or you, you, um, which means uh, good news. Euangelon, right? Kind of like uh, uh, if you put an EU before something, it means that to make it better. Like you have a euphemism, is you're going to say something phonically, but you're going to make it sound nicer. Right? So somebody's not short, they're vertically challenged, or something like that. Euphemism. Right? Well, we have a new message, a better message, a good message. Uh, and so where we get the word evangelism. A new message that he has. That word uh, for evangelism, or, or the gospel, is found 94 times in the New Testament. 10% of them are found in this book, these four chapters. That lets you know that this book is about uh, significantly about this new message. It starts there. What is the gospel? Well, Paul doesn't really go into explaining the gospel in this, even though he talks a lot about it. Why? Because he's writing to a church, people who already understand what the new message is. So, what is this new message? What is the gospel? Well, if you remember, we talked in the book of Acts, uh, we did that a, a couple weeks ago, uh, a couple months ago, where we, talked, we went through that, there's a new message, the gospel is this. It starts with this, it's, it's not about you, it's not about us, it's about Jesus, that we can be saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And as we follow him, he transforms us from the inside so that we become a blessing to the world. That's the gospel. And it's an amazing thing. This is the new message that we have. And so when we read this new message that we have, saved, you are saved by God's grace. That this is not something that you did. God did it for you. Right? But it starts with this. It's not about you. Think about this. All the stuff that we had, the gospel of this world is it's all about you. And if your life is going well, then you've got a good message to give. And if your life is hard, then nobody wants to talk to you, right? Uh, nobody, nobody loves you when you're down and out. I think uh, I heard a song about that once. But God is a better message. It's not about you. It's about him. We can live for something bigger than ourselves. Our goals in life can be so much more. The problem with most people's resolutions or the ways they try to spice up a broken life is this, is, is it's too small, it's not enough. We live for two small things. And Jesus says you can live for something bigger, better, eternal. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. And he enters, he invites us into a better way of life, an eternal kind of life. And that kind of life is not because you deserve it. It is by God's grace, meaning you don't deserve it. It's not a wage. You don't, you don't earn your way into the kingdom. You're not so good now you can start showing up at church. You show up at church, you recognize I'm not good enough and never will be, but God loves me. And he does love you. Man, does he love you. We just celebrated at Christmas. He loves you enough to even leave heaven to come down and save you. But you can be saved by works? No! By being knowing the right things all the time, being perfect? No. You're suffering enough. No. Saved by His grace. Through faith. That's an amazing message. This is the only thing on earth. I mean, we get the best 
invitation. This is why it's such good news. It's not something you can fail because God didn't fail. He did it. He came to earth. He died on the cross for your sins. He rose again, proved he's God, and has overcome death, overcome sin, and says, now I'm welcoming you a family. Just trust me. But this faith has got to be in him. It can't be anybody else. He says, you've got to trust me. By grace, through faith, in what? In Jesus Christ as Lord. I mean, we have to understand that he's God, and it makes perfect sense why. Because if Jesus is just some smart old you know, sage that lived around, you know, a couple thousand years ago, then he has no power to really save you. His, his wisdom might help you a little in life, but he can't transform you because he's dead. But if we recognize he's God, he has every ability to save me. This is why we must trust that he is Lord, he is God. And when I say Lord, it means that he has the right that we follow him. The gospel is not a conversion experience where, you say, where Jesus says, hey, do you believe that I'm who I said? And you say, yes, I do. And you're like, all right. It's not how it works. He is Lord. We find in the gospel Jesus never following anybody. He walks through the crowds and says, if you want to listen to me, you want to come, you follow me. Right? This is how it works. He is Lord. Jesus is not interested in following you in your life. He says, let me take you where your feet would never go. Let you follow me into places that you would never be able to see on your own. You follow me. That's what a disciple is. We follow Jesus. Lord. We need to trust him as Lord. Believe him as Lord. Not our puppy dog. Not our slave. Not a little genie in a bottle. He is God. And we believe it because only God can save me from my sins. Only God can transform me from the inside out. Only God is really worth following, by the way. But also he's Savior. That's the second thing we need to believe about him, that God didn't just show up. Jesus didn't just show up so that he could make us have a better life. He came to save me. He came to throw away that old burnt-up steak and offer me a new one. That's what he came to do. He is Savior. That's who I trust. My hope is in him. That is the gospel. That's why it's good news. It's a message that's different in the world. It's not about you. It's not up to you. It's something so much better than you. And this is the gospel that we find that Philippians speaks about over and over and over again. The new life we have begins with the gospel. Chapter 1 really talks about not just what the message is, it really talks about is our response to it. In fact, it gives us three responses to the gospel. Verse 3, we start with the first one. It says, I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion in Christ Jesus. That's amazing. Our first response that he sees in the gospel to this great message is fellowship. Paul is identifying, he said, we're in this together. Right? The first thing the gospel should cause us to do is have a different, a new kind of fellowship. When Paul showed up at Philippi, he was a, a unique fella. He was a Jew in a city that didn't have a synagogue. He brought people to the kingdom. You think about Jewish people, especially a rabbi like he was. He was let his whole life be pure. Don't talk to Gentiles. He wasn't there because he had this great affinity for their life. He, he wasn't with them because he was like them. That's not what drew him together. But here he writes, he says, I pray for you all the time. I'm connected to you. Why? The gospel. That he has been saved by God's grace through faith, and so have they. He has a new family. A new family. He wasn't with them because they had the same background. He wasn't just ethnically different. He was like completely different. He grew up in a different part of the world. Now he's in Europe. The gospel had never even been to Europe before. These people were totally different. They had their politics. He was, that was not where he found his affinity with these people. It was the gospel that allowed him to say, you are my brothers and sisters. The first response to the gospel is fellowship. 
right? And we see that. He says that I thank God every time I remember you in prayers. I'm connected to you. I don't have to live with you. I don't have to be part of your culture. You don't have to be like me. You don't have to think like me. But we have to tell you what we have is we have the same Lord and Savior. We're in this together. But it's also not just fellowship with one another. Notice it's also fellowship with God himself because he says, he says, I pray for you, which means that God's with him in that prison cell. You ever thought about that whenever you pray? If God wasn't with you, you're just talking to the wall. Like how stupid that would be. That's why people in the Old Covenant, they had to go to a temple. They had to actually have priests and offer their prayers because that's where God was. What a privilege it is that we have automatic access, that God is with you. That's what he's saying, that you have now fellowship with God because of the gospel. You are saved by God's grace through faith, that he's there with you. Your anchor holds within the veil, right? That we have access to God in the Holy of Holies spiritually, intimately, all the time, that God is with you. But guess what? He's not just with you. He is with you, but he's also with other people, even halfway across the world. Because he says, as he prays for them, he says, I am confident of this that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. How could God be at work in the Philippians if God wasn't with the Philippians? You know, God doesn't just work. He doesn't work remotely. He worked in people's lives. That God was working in the lives of the Philippians, which means that while Paul was geographically hundreds of miles away in a prison, God was there and he was also present with the Philippian people. We have a fellowship with God. The gospel causes us to respond in that way. One of the things the good news lets us know is that God needs to be part of our life. He's not just out there. He's not just some other. The gospel says to us, God needs to be part of this. This is foundational. But I'm called to have a relationship with him. And because I have a relationship with him, I have a relationship with the people he's accepted, which is his family. So we have this new life. It has this fellowship. It responds to us. This is why we come to church. We don't go to church because it makes us feel good. I hope it makes you feel good, but that's not why we come. We don't come to church because we like one another because there are days that you don't like one another, right? Have you ever had family, siblings? You don't always like one another, but you're still part of the family. Why do we come to church? Because God tells us. He calls us home. He says, once a week, I want you to come. It makes him happy. It's for our good, but it makes him happy. We come because of him. It's fellowship with him, which also says we have fellowship with one another. The gospel's response is that way. If it wasn't for the gospel, but because of the gospel, we have a kinship. We pray for, we care for one another. We come together. The second thing that we find in the gospel is that our second response then is focus. Where is our focus? This world tells us to focus on me, doesn't it? All the time. It's always about me. Can I improve my life? Am I doing better? Is, is this fulfilling for me? Is it all about me, 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 me? The gospel gives us a different focus. In fact, the gospel starts with, it's not about me. It's about him, right? So we read about Paul, how he demonstrates this. Uh, starting, we'll start in uh, verse 12. We'll read 12 through 14. It says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. What has happened to him? Oh, I don't know. He just got thrown into j- beat up and thrown into jail for years for crimes that he didn't commit. He says, all of this has happened to me. And he's not bitter about it, by the way. He says, all of this has happened, and it's actually a good thing. He says, that has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. God's at work in this. Can you imagine? As, he says, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. It's obvious that they're not persecuting me. They're persecuting Jesus. That they recognize that the palace guard now knows about Jesus. And that he, some people say he's worthy to suffer for. This is a good thing. Verse 14, it says, because of my chains, because of my chains, interesting enough, 
My brothers and sisters have become more confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. He's like, my suffering, because they're like, hey, God's with you in that. He's not going to abandon us. We don't have to be afraid anymore. And because he was able to suffer, he was able to say, listen, the gospel's strong. So this is why Paul wasn't bitter. Most people become bitter in life because life doesn't give us what we think it owes us. Isn't that true? You work really hard to be a healthy person, and then all of a sudden age catches up with you, and it's just mean, right? You're like, I lived my whole life as a good person. How come I can't, you know, my knees don't work anymore, right? We do our whole life. We, 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 we budget. We do all of our finances. We do everything. We set it up, and then somebody robs us, or, or the stock market tanks, or, or, you know, you get like a, a Bernie Madoff type person just absconds with everything. You're like, I worked for that. This is not fair. And we get bitter at life. I'll tell you, this world has ripped every one of us off. Every one of us. It's a broken world. That's the point. This isn't heaven, it's dangerous. Every one of us had relationships not go we, the way that we worked and earned them for. It's not fair. Every one of us has suffered things because other people are nasty or because the world is broken, bad stuff has happened. That is reality. Our focus can't be on this world didn't give me what I wanted because if that's the way it was, we're all going to be bitter. We're going to be perpetual victims. Who can, isn't that the way the world works? We don't see Paul doing that. He's not sitting in prison brooding those nasty Romans and Jewish people who stuck me in here. I don't like them, right? I'm an oppressed person. He says, you locked me up. The gospel's still going. I'm actually happy about it, right? I see God at work, and I know God's still working with you. It's good. It's good. I'm good. That's what he was. Where's his focus? The gospel. The new message, this is the focus, because he says, what has happened to me actually advanced what? What is the word he says there? Has actually advanced the gospel. This is the focus. It's not about you. It's not about me. Sometimes we will suffer, and God says he promises, I will use your suffering to do great things through you, in you, and for you, but also for his kingdom. That's the promise. So our focus is different. This is how we respond. Because we know we've been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, our hope is no longer here, is it? I don't get a better life. I don't get a spiced up burnt steak. I get a new life. And I, that new life, my hope is not here. My treasures are not being stored up here where everything can destroy it and it can be, this work can be robbed me. My hope is in heaven where no one's going to steal it. You know, you, you think about this. Um, you, uh, you try to gain everything in this life. The stuff that, that the world tells you, this, if it's about you, the things you want to have are wealth, right? You want to be rich, comfortable, have power that way. Okay? You want to have influence, Right? You want to be a powerful person, top of your game, maybe you know, CEO or head of whatever. You're going to have that kind of influence. You want to have popularity. You want people to love you. Right? This is what we all kind of crave in this world. Well, let's think about it. What if we did get all of those things? I mean, to just an enormous measure that we, we got them. Let's just say that you were so smart, you invented some kind of new gizmodo gadget or something like that, and like you became the wealthiest person in the world, and you were able to, so rich, you were able to buy all the countries. You're like, ching, I'll take China, please, for 200, and all, right? You buy all of them, and everybody in the world has to like you or you kill them, right? So they like you a lot, right? Every book, instant bestseller. You're a celebrity. You walk around. How long do you get to hold on to that? You're going to die. All of us do, right? We check out. Praise God for that. This world's broken. Even if you gained those things, you would hold them for a very short period of time. 
Right? This is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew or Mark when he says this. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? If you gained everything, you can't hold it forever. Not here. And here's the reality is none of us have ever achieved temporary. Go to a cemetery. Right? Walk around a cemetery. You're going to see people who had wealth and friends and influence lying right next to people who died penniless and poor and didn't have anybody who loved them. Go to an old cemetery. Nobody even remember who they were. It's not like you go to a cemetery and there's like parties happening. Right? You're like, this place is dead. <laughs> it's true, though. We have to realize that our goals in life, our resolutions all the time are telling us gain the world, or at least a bigger portion of it. God says gain a soul, gain eternity. This is your hope. It's something bigger. This is so much better than anything that you could get on your own. And so he calls us to it. This is the way of Christ. It is a new life that he calls us to, not a better life, not better morals, not just a better way of doing things, not something better to to believe in. He says, I want you to have a new life, a new life. And if you've missed that, if you've been coming to the church and you've missed that, I'm so sorry. Jesus did not come and say, believe me. He said, follow me. He has something so much bigger for you. And it's not always easy, but it is great. It is great. And so we have to begin with this. We have to say, I'm willing to lose those things. It's like the rich young ruler. He came to Jesus, didn't he? And he said, Jesus, I want to I be part of this, this thing. I want to have this, this new life. I've been faithful to the covenant and the commands. I've done all these things. I'm a very moral person. And Jesus said to him, yeah, it's good. You've done all those things. It's awesome. But you do lack something. You're owned by your stuff. You can't have that master. Give all of your stuff to the poor, and then you can come follow me. And that rich young ruler wasn't willing to do it. He wasn't willing to have a new lord and master. He wasn't willing to have a new life. He wanted just a better life, a more peaceful life. And we notice that Jesus, he didn't follow after that man saying, please, 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 turn around. Maybe just give a little bit. Jesus said, let him go. Do you know his name? No, none of us know. He's just the rich young ruler, some sad guy. Who missed it. If he would have followed Jesus, we'd be naming our kids after him, just like the other apostles. He missed it. He gained the world, lost his soul. What a tragedy. If you want to follow Jesus, it costs you everything, not some things. You have to say, I'm not, I'm not living for what I lived for before. I'm living for the gospel. That's the call. But if you do that, you have a better life. There's so much more to it. And you look back at the old life that you were trying to keep, and it was never going to fulfill you anyway. That's why there was this... Uh, uh, a, a John or Jim Elliot, Jim Elliot, amazing guy. He went to uh, the this tribe of people, he and his family and some friends, to go teach them the gospel. They had never heard the gospel before. They were totally unreached, and they were cannibals and very, very hostile. And he was a brilliant young man, brilliant, could translate languages, knew about cultures, all that kind of stuff. He was a pilot. I mean, he just was a brilliant guy, and. Uh, so he went over there to, to go and to help bring the gospel to them. And the, his first contact, he and some of his other, the other missionaries that were with him, they were executed right there by the people that he went to, to bring the gospel to. And so he died. Like all of his work, everything just kind of came to end. And his wife, Elizabeth, uh, was brave and brought their daughter and went down into that same, 
that same people group and shared the gospel with them. And then that whole tribe eventually be, was saved. It's an amazing story. Before he went, though, this guy, Jim Elliott, he, um, people would ask him, they'd say, why are you going? Why are you throwing away your life? You're brilliant. You could be wealthy. You could, be, you could have everything. Why would you leave the comforts of the United States to go to these people that's really high risk? And he said something I think was so profound. He said, he is no fool who, who trades what he cannot keep for that which he cannot lose. Think about that. Like, yeah, I could have these things for a short time, but I have the gospel. I have the gospel. I have the good news. I am saved by God's grace through faith. Heaven is mine. My wealth is there. My friends are there. In heaven, I'm famous. Right? Heaven, I'm loved. We have to have a different kind of focus. This year, I invite you to have a different kind of focus to say that the gospel is alive in me and through me. Live for bigger things. Your third response is fidelity. Once we accept the gospel, there is a different kind of thing. We're not faithful to ourselves anymore. Sometimes God will ask us to make sacrifice. Bad things will happen to you, not in spite of your faith, but because of your faith. We have to realize that our response to the gospel is, I'm going to be faithful to Christ even still. He's not being mean to me. It's not about me. He's already gotten me taken care of. My home is already set. My wealth is already set. He's already working, and he's still working in me now. But if there's sacrifice that needs to be made, if I have to die to myself, I will do it. (laughs) There is a fidelity that is necessary. In verse 15, we see this. um, Paul writes, he says, For it is very true that some preach Christ out of envy and out of rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here in defense of the gospel. The former preach the gospel out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that it can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in either way, rejoice! Understand that it's not about you or me. We're taken care of. You've received the gospel. We need to respond with fidelity to Christ. He's cared for you. He died on a cross for you. Now we have to pick up our cross and follow him. That's what Jesus said. In fact, one of the parables that Jesus said, he said, count the cost before you follow him. He said, don't be like a guy who goes to build his house without ever making a budget. Because what will happen is you don't count the cost. You think, oh, I want the house. So you go out there and you do all your effort and your work and all that kind of stuff. You get half a house built and you run out of money. You're like, oh, and then you got to quit. What he's saying is people accept the gospel like that all the time. They want the, the place in heaven. They want the peace. They want security. They want the purpose in life. But they're not willing to pay the price. They're not willing to do it. And so they live their life up to a point, and then it gets hard, and then they walk away, and they lose it all. I read an article last night. broke my heart. It was New York Times. And it was about a man, a Christian, who writes in there, big, long thing about why he stopped being a Christian. He walked away from the faith. Let me summarize it for you. Here's a guy who had a conversion experience. He felt all warm and fuzzy and all that kind of stuff. And then he realized later as he grew up in the faith that Christians aren't perfect. And because of that, the church isn't perfect because the church is made of what? People. And then it blew his mind. The church isn't perfect. They sometimes argue. They sometimes don't spend money the way that I think that it should be spent. They don't think of two things the way that I think they should be. They don't always act perfect. Duh, we're sinners. That's why we're here. We're saved. But because of that, he's like, I just can't be part of this. I'm like, well, you can't be part of humanity, dude. Right? So he walks away from the faith. God asked me to do things, and I just don't want to do them. Okay. Like the rich on Euler. Jesus is not following him out the door saying, please, please, please stop. He's like, don't let the door hit you. Jesus is like, I came, I died on a cross for your sins. I paid the price. I rose from the grave. I gave you the scripture through the blood of all kinds of saints to make sure you had it. You know what I wanted. 
and you know that I'd be with you, and then I gave you my Holy Spirit, and then you walk away, walk away. Not willing to pay the price? You don't deserve it. Jesus said, if you put your hands to the plow and you look back, you're not worthy of the kingdom. We want the gospel. We need the gospel. Fidelity. Here's the thing. It's not about you. Jesus said, if you're going to follow him, he says you're going to pick up your cross every day and follow him. Let me tell you what this looks like. There's going to be suffering because you're a Christian. Fidelity is necessary. People are going to do mean things, just like with Paul. They're going to preach the gospel just to stick it in your side. Don't get away and get mad. Well, the church is so mean, it's so corrupt. The gospel was preached from wrong motives. I'm going to leave this. No, you say, I'm, I'm good. Gospel's preached. Um, I just got done with holiday season, as a dose of you, and I'm exhausted. You know, I'm going to lay down on the couch for a second. You can sit there. I had uh, I have my family. I love my family. I love my family dearly. I pray for them every single day. My parents are coming closer to Jesus, and I praise God for that. It's been amazing to watch. My uh, siblings, on the other hand, for the last 10 years have walked further and further away, harder and harder away from God. And Amy and Thomas and I, we've walked closer to Christ. In fact, it's really fun. It's New Year's to kind of look, look where you were a year ago in your faith and say, am I closer to Jesus now? And it's so awesome when you do that. You're like, yeah, God's alive in my life. Well, there's a separation. And with that, um, there's a greater hostility that every year, it's like a, it's just exhausting. Um, they come and, and they more and more reject us. That's what it feels like. So um, over the last 14 days, I've been called everything from dark-souled, dangerous, um, did you know that uh, I, uh, because of, of just, um, I'm a white Christian male guy, that I'm intrinsically sexist, racist, um, I'm, I'm basically, I, I'm genocidal. I was called that by a niece. Um, and my son is left out of things because he's a Christian. Um, there's a cost to it. And, but I realized last year, this is why I have, I'm exhausted, but I'm not broken. Last year, during this time, because it's been this way for several years, and every year it's kind of hard, and I love, and it's hard to be stabbed by the people you love most. You have that? You, you, a lot, you, a lot, you get it. I was reading the Gospel of Matthew, and Jesus said, don't be surprised, my brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. They hated me first. He went on to say, you know, if the world says awful things about you and people you love say mean things about you, malign you because of me, they throw a party because you'd basically won the heavenly lottery. Great's your reward. I realized at that time that they weren't rejecting me. My family loves to be around me as so long as I don't act Christian. They really do, right? Oh, they'll love to come over. They'll play games. The nieces and nephews want to be around me because I'm kind of funny sometimes. I'm goofy and I don't mind to sing karaoke at the top of my lungs. I'm fun. They like me so long as I'm, I'm not pastor. But I'm not Christian. As soon as anything comes up, and sometimes they'll look for something to be offended by, then they, they reject. They are not rejecting me. They are rejecting Christ in me. If I would just walk away from Jesus, if I would say that all of you are the dark-souled people that they say you are, and I, I was too, and now I've seen the light of their new whatever crazy ethics that they have is the right way to go, if I bow down at the altar of their secularism and, and, and of, of what they want to do, I would be, in, in, I would be embraced with open arms. It's not about me. They reject me because they reject Jesus. That's the persecution and rejection. It is the cross. Jesus said, if you don't love me more than your family, you don't deserve me. I love him. And it doesn't mean that I hate my family. Uh, Here's the thing. The world wages war, doesn't it? And what is it I want to do when they sit in my own house and they malign my own Savior as they sit under a picture of a cross? 
right? As they, 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 they like alienate my son, as they, as, they, as they assassinate my character, I want to strike back. What I, human part of me wants to do the old way and go back up and say, how dare you talk to me about ethics? How dare you talk to me about what's right and wrong, you God-haters? Well, part of me wants to say, I hope you like it warm because you're going to be toasty for a while. This is what I want to do. But I will tell you how many fighting, screaming matches we had in my home. Zero. Because they came at me with hate, and Jesus said to love your enemies. And I would hold my tongue, or I would respond with just, well, I don't see it that way. Sometimes I've just told them, listen, that hurt, but I forgive you. Right? We all do that. This is the new way. We demonstrate a different kind of life, a life that leads to peace, a life that even though I don't feel safe in my own home when my family is there, they feel safe. They feel loved. I don't need their love. I have God's love. And because of that, I can love them in a way that they can't even fathom yet. And someday when God redeems them and I get to heaven, I'll get to have more riches than they do. And so that's where I get my... (laughs) Right? But this is a different fidelity that we have. How many of us live our life trying to please other people, trying to please ourselves, buying things we can't afford to impress people we don't even know, working ourselves silly for a career that we're never going to keep fully forever, giving up all of eternity so that we can take just a piece of today? There's a different way. Jesus said, the gospel is yours. Be faithful. You don't always have to like it. You won't understand it. It's going to be painful at times. You'll feel lonely at times, but it is worth it. Follow me, he said. Past the cross, past the empty tomb, and into the heaven. That's what he says. Follow me. The new life. The new life that we have, you, I, both have in Christ. This is so much better than a New Year's resolution. It is an invitation today to live differently. So how do we live differently? It starts with our new message, doesn't it? A new message that says that we are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's not about you. It is totally about him. And as we follow him, he transforms us. He changes his power transforms us from the inside out so that we become a blessing to the world. Enter that new life with us. Let's do it together. Let's live it. It starts with that new message. That message message causes us all together to say, you know, we are focusing not on me, but on him, on what he's doing in Estes Park and what he's doing in my family, what he's doing in the world. It's worth sacrificing a little for that. And so we respond with fidelity. Not about my comfort, not about my goals or my dreams. I'm with Jesus. And I have a new life in him. And I invite you to join me this year on this adventure to live this new life. How are you going to do it? How do you take those next steps? How do we follow the Lord? Well, I have some just simple steps, next steps I'm going to challenge you to take. Take out your connection card. Easy things to begin with. Remember, steps aren't giant leaps. Steps are steps. They may seem small, but I tell you, enough small steps will take you to great places, especially for following Jesus. So would you take a step of faithfulness today? In this new life, the first thing I'm going to challenge you to do is would you memorize Philippians 4.13? That you can do all this through him who gives you strength. Would you take that and make it real today and this week when the enemy comes and all this is saying, you know, I'm not going to be good enough myself. You say, it's not up to me. I'm going to trust God. I'm just going to be faithful. I'm going to be faithful today. Through him, he's going to give me the strength. Would you do that? That's you. Take this memory verse card, pull it off, put it in your pocket, your wallet. Take it with you. Think about it every day. How does it apply? Maybe what we want to do is read Philippians 1. I read a couple of verses. Read the chapter. There's a whole lot more. There's great stuff in there. Or how about this? Would you pray for three people? Because the gospel wasn't just for you. The good news is that Jesus didn't come to just save you. Could it be a, heaven would be lousy if it was just you there. Right? 
We want to populate the party. And so we've been sent out to spread the gospel. And how do we do that? It starts with prayer. Pray that God prepares the hearts. And you know three people who don't know the Lord. And if you don't, come talk to me. We'll help you make new friends. But I also know a lot of people who don't know the Lord. Pray for them. Pray that God will prepare their hearts to receive the gospel. Pray that God will prepare you to share the gospel or whoever it is. But pray that he would help you. Pray that God would reveal to you the time, the right time, and that he would give you the courage and the words. Pray for it. Pray for three people every day. You can even write their names on this and use it as a bookmark if you want to. And maybe that's what you begin this year, commit to it. See how God answers, how his kingdom advances through you. Or how about this? You're going to say, I'm going to start attending for the series. That's faithfulness. Church isn't about you. It's not because it's convenient. We come to church because of God. He wants you to be here. If you want to read about this new life, find out about this new life, what does it mean? How do we live it? Be here. I'm challenging you. Make him your priority. You want to make that priority? Put it down. Put it as notice to the enemy that your life has now changed. You're not putting salt on your burnt steak anymore. You're living a whole new life. And second, we're going to take our offering. As we do, if you have prayer requests, this is your last opportunity to write that down before we take it. And when we take our offering, I invite you to take these connections, put that in the basket along with your tithes and your gifts. Let me pray for you as you do that and for our offering, and we'll have the worship team come and close us with a song of worship. Let's pray. Father God, new life in you, fantastic. You are amazing. Thank you for this family of faith that you brought me to the kinship and camaraderie that we have, this fellowship that we have with you, but also with one another because of your great love. Help us to treat one another with with grace and mercy and faithfulness. Focus us this year, this church and the churches on Estes part. Bless us with your direction and guidance through your Holy Spirit, Father, that we would be focused on your gospel and less on ourselves. And Father, we pray too that you would help us to be faithful to you and your word. Give us the courage to obey you and to trust you and to follow you so that we could go to the places that we would only dream of before. Father, be miraculous in us in that way. Transform us. Give us the courage to see you at work in this life. Father, I pray that you would take these tithes, these offerings, these gifts, and, Father, the commitments that we've made, all of them investments in your kingdom. Grow them greatly that your kingdom would advance and that you would receive the glory that you you deserve. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.